morning, everyone. So today's reading is from Proverbs chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Find them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, coloured linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, she, uh, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm really thankful to Simon for his introduction earlier on. And I guess it's actually true that I do spend a lot of time talking to myself with nobody listening. But I should point out, as you evaluate what Simon said about me, that his response to one of those safety uh, slides where the guy was hanging out of the building cleaning the window uh, on 32nd floor was that uh, the only issue Simon could see was the guy didn't have a shirt on so he was going to get sunburned. Uh, so <laughs> factor, that, factor that in as you evaluate Simon's comment about me. So. <clears throat> Question to get us going this morning as we want to jump into this uh, familiar and perhaps uh, foreboding chapter. Why do people find themselves doing that which they know is not good for them? We would typically say, well, it's a bad habit. And that's true. But then the question becomes, why are habits so compulsive, especially when they're destructive? Uh, 
To help us understand this, I want to introduce uh, a personal thing. I want to introduce you to my habit of comfort eating, or what I would like to see as the idol of comfort eating. Now, we might think idols are uh, images of of a god that some remote uh, tribe might worship, and that's true. But idols are actually much more immediate and much more personal. Uh, All of us, I believe, have idols we worship, many idols. Some of them we know about, some of them we haven't even discovered yet. So the question is then, uh, personally, why do I overeat? Well, again, I might just say, well, it's a habit. It's a habit I've developed because it's been part of the culture of my family or because I like food, and I do. But why do I continue to overeat, eat, overeat when I see myself getting fat, when I, see, uh, when I know it's bad for my health long term? And when Alison constantly says, stop eating, you don't need to eat. Now, I've tried to tell myself, just say to myself, stop eating, you don't need to eat. But strangely, when I do that, it actually increases the craving for food. It increases the craving to the point where it actually dominates, and I can't think of anything else except food. It's really weird. I can sit there watching TV thinking about what I could be getting to snack out of the cupboard. That's how compulsive it is. That's how dominating it is. A couple of years ago, just uh, in a random conversation, uh, Rob Patterson made a comment to me uh, that totally opened up a new perspective on eating for me and has helped me actually start breaking the habit of comfort eating. He suggested to me that eating can be an idol. That is, eating is something that can be done to achieve a goal buried deep in my thinking. So the eating isn't for the eating's sake, it's for what the eating promises to deliver to me. So from that point, I was forced to admit I was a comfort eater. My mum has been a comfort eater over her years, and I always wanted to say I wasn't like my mum at that point. But I was forced to say that I was a comfort eater. That is, eating for me is a coping strategy. It's a go-to behavior because I think it will deliver a goal or an outcome that I believe I need or want or desire. And that associated with eating is a sense of, of, of feeling as if I'm, I've got a space to unwind, uh, to feel relaxed, uh, to feel sort of comfortable and safe, to feel satisfied in the midst of a day when there might have been turmoil all around me. I withdraw and I eat. And so it's no surprise then, I can also detect in my life that the greater stress, the greater the stress in my life or work or relationships, the more likely I am to overeat. And so I want to say it in these terms, that the idol of overeating demands ever-increasing sacrifices from me. That is, I find over the years that I've had to eat more and more to get the same outcome, to get the same results, to get the same level of satisfaction. And so it becomes a habit. But it's more than a habit. It's an idol. It's something I worship. It controls me. 
And I, it controlled me regardless. I sacrificed that idol regardless of the cost to my overall health and a growing belly. And so as a Christian then, I realized that I was trying to find in food something that I could only properly find in God. And so my, my idol ended up being a cheap substitute for real satisfaction. And that was obvious. It didn't give me lasting satisfaction. Now, this process of thinking, these idols exist in so many areas of life. And if you're not an overeater like me, perhaps you're a binge alcohol drinker. Uh, perhaps you're a binge Netflix user. Uh, perhaps you're, you binge social media. Perhaps you binge electronic gaming. Or perhaps you binge at the shops and shopping. Uh, perhaps for you it's work or being outstanding in your career. Maybe that's your idol. Maybe that's the thing that you sacrifice everything for because you hope it will deliver the outcome of satisfaction and, and fulfillment. Uh, perhaps your idol is simply being happy. Uh, being married, being beautiful, being needed, being liked. All of these things can get a hold of us and cause us to sacrifice again and again at ever more increasing cost simply to, to, to get that which that thing promises to deliver to us. we push aside or sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice. And that might be people at one point. It might be relationships at another point. It might be money. It might be time. It might be our health. All of which will be sacrificed as we chase the, the goal which the habit or action promises to deliver to us. Now, coming closer to the passage, I want to suggest this morning that sex easily becomes an idol. We ask the question, why do people keep doing wrong things, keep showing unfaithfulness in this realm of how we use our sexuality, when we know so jolly well that the results are destructive, very destructive? I suggest it's much more than just saying to ourselves, well, don't do that, do this. We've got to see sex and sexuality from a new perspective. I suggest this morning we've got to see it as the potential of being an idol which we're serving because it promises something that we think we need. Now sex, of course, is a good thing. Uh, make that, hear that very clearly. Sex is God's idea. It's built into the very fabric of every single one of us in all its pleasure. but it easily becomes an idol, something we crave because we believe it will deliver something we think we need or want or desire. That is, in, in, in the case of, of uh, sex, it, it promises to deliver intimacy. And intimacy is something we all desperately want. And intimacy is a feeling of being loved. 
a feeling of being valued, a feeling of fulfillment, of pleasure, happiness, validation. All of those things are built into the idea of, of intimacy. And as, as people, as individuals, we desperately crave that. And so if we're not careful, then sex can become that idol and the desire for sex can start to dominate us like an addiction. And that addiction can happen whether you're married or in a de facto relationship or whether you're in a serial monogamy situation where you, you, you say faithfulness is really important but you don't mind changing partners every 18 months. Or the classic affair, having sex with someone you're not married to. Or just one night stand. Or pornography, whether it's male pornography visual or female pornography emotionally driven. In any of these situations, sex can become an idol. That is something that takes a hold of you and starts to dominate your whole passion, pa pattern of thinking. It's a demanding idol. Pushing a person to sacrifice whatever is required to achieve the outcome it promises and the person desires. Even though all the evidence says that it actually delivers destruction and hurt. Not true intimacy. Not a lasting reality of, of being loved and valued and happy. Now, with that perspective on craving intimacy and the alternatives of true and false intimacy, which Martin opened up last week from chapter 6, and those, that true and false intimacy correspond with wisdom and foolishness, and with the importance of talking to myself about the temptation to settle for false intimacy, let's, with all that in mind, let's jump into chapter 7 with what I hope is a new perspective uh, this morning, focused on, on what I'm now wanting to call the idol of sex. Now, another question uh, to, to, to step up your thinking. Why do people opt for sexual unfaithfulness and betrayal, even when they know from the experience all around them that it's so destructive, self-destructive and destructive to everyone who's betrayed? Make the question personal. Proverbs warns repeatedly about the awfulness of unfaithfulness and betrayal. <clears throat> but I wonder how you've been engaging with that over past weeks as we work through this series. Is it something that you think, well, that's a, that's a problem for somebody else? And you might actually have names in your mind. But, but it's not an issue for me. It's not something you're going to get caught or I'm going to get caught in. Is it, is it a temptation that you think you're immune to? Or, or even worse, perhaps, is it a temptation that you recognize but you think you're strong enough to resist without too much fuss? C.S. Lewis, I come across an interesting quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, and it says this. We often say that a man, and you could read a woman in there as well because it works in reverse. We often say that a man... Uh, driven by lust, wants a woman. 
But strictly speaking, he does not want a woman. What he wants is a pleasure to achieve his inner goal of being loved or happy, for which a beautiful woman is simply a necessary piece of apparatus. In some ways, it's a, it's a, it's a confronting statement, isn't it? And it's profound. So I'll read it again. We often say that a man driven by lust wants a woman. But strictly speaking, he does not want a woman. He wants a pleasure to achieve his inner goal of being loved or happy, for which a beautiful woman is simply a necessary piece of apparatus. Hear what Lewis is saying? He's saying the idol of sex has got a hold of this person. And it's the pleasure that they're craving and seeking. In a sense, the woman's irrelevant. Or at best, just a tool. Now, of course, as I said before, the, the reverse may be said uh, for a woman. Lust for both men and women is the expression of a heart idol. A genuine craving for true intimacy, of being loved and accepted and valued, while settling for a false or substitute intimacy through sex. And again, it has to be a false intimacy because true and lasting intimacy can only be found in God. So, when we come into this picture here, and we're about to launch into the details of it, so in practice, adultery that's talked about here and right through um, um, Proverbs, adultery is both a picture of unfaithfulness and betrayal in practical relationships, a marriage relationship that's spoken about here. It's immediate and earthy and real and human. It's both that and simultaneously a picture of unfaithfulness and betrayal in our relationship with God. The two are essentially and fundamentally the same because each situation of unfaithfulness is chasing what something else other than God offers us. Chasing after love and acceptance and validation in things or relationships other than that which we have with God. This passage is incredibly confronting in its description of what I'm calling the slippery slope, the slippery slide of seduction in verses 6 through to 23. And here's the point, you see. Adultery doesn't happen randomly in a vacuum. There is always a process of small steps that are taken. Sometimes the process as a, as a whole unit happens fairly quickly. Sometimes, and most often I would venture to suggest, most often that process happens rather slowly over a long period of time. But it is a process. And the scenario here is uh, that of a young bloke. He's uh, de depicted here the term as being simple. And that in Proverbs is a, is a sort of poetic descriptive term. It doesn't mean he's lacking intellect, far from it. It means he's naive. He's inexperienced in life and yet at the same time willful, uh, unwilling to accept instruction in life. And he drifts into temptation here. Led by his thinking and feelings, 
convinced that he is in control of events when all the time this woman has him in her hands and, and molding him like putty. And the process is this, working through the verses fairly quickly here. The first thing is verses 8 and 9, imagining. Imagining what is on offer is what he's doing. And, and, and so he, that imagination takes him to hang out near where she lives. And he takes, takes him there after dark. His imagining is already driving his actions to move towards this woman. He's already moving towards her physically. And verse 10, it says, behold. In other words, it means, surprise, surprise. He moves here and he hangs out near her house. And guess what? Oh, he bumps into her just randomly. And they're off and running. And when, he, when they do meet, she's dressed really provocatively. And her body language is saying, hey, I, I'm available with, with an overpowering sexuality. And at the very first stage, whatever he might think, she has taken control. Compartmentalizing, verse, uh, verse 13, is the next stage. And by the way, this isn't absolute. I'm just trying to put words in here to help us see how this process works. Compartmentalizing, verse 13. They embrace and kiss. The first movement of a monorail that will end in sexual intercourse. And in the same moment... In verse 14, she presents herself as being a godly person and a genuine worshiper of God. So picture the moment. She, she embraces this guy and kisses him, and he embraces her and kisses her, so it's, it's a mutual thing. And then, what's the conversation? Well, actually, you should know, I've just been to the temple. I, I've just actually done my duty as a worshiper of God. I've offered my sacrifices. Compartmentalizing is living with a massive disconnect in life between our, what we would call our ordinary life or my life and my spiritual life. Thinking that one offsets the other. Because I go to church, because I say my prayers, because I read my Bible, because I do all these things, well, I'm obviously an obedient servant of the Lord, and so over here I can find space to do and find my satisfaction in a different way. Now that's a really, really shocking reveal. But it's a very common position for people to find themselves in. Because it allows them, next thing, to rationalize or normalize their intentions. And so they can say, in the same breath, with no apparent conflict in their, in, their, in their minds, that, okay, I'm a serious-minded, obedient servant of God. Now, let's plan to have illicit sex together. And then there's personalizing, verse 15. And, and you can just hear these words. So now... I've come out to meet you. 
to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. You are the person I've been looking for all my life. Only you can meet my needs and give me the satisfaction I've craved all my life. And you can feel the bloke going weak at the knees. And it resonates with both their idols. Both of them are craving intimacy. She wants him, values him, delights in him, and in turn, he believes that only he can make her happy. And then there's one more which I actually missed out. Uh, I don't know whether it's a Freudian slip or the Lord trying to tell me something, but the next one I have in my notes here is titillation. Uh, verses 16 to 18, if you don't understand, the, if you don't know the word, you'll know the, you'll know the, the, the practice. And she says, I spread my couch with coverings. And, and then she starts to describe the situation. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Titillation is in her flirtation. And I can tell you now that all logic has gone from this guy's brain. Because in his senses, he's already there. He's already in her bed. He can smell it. He can see it. He can feel it. Because she's described it for him. And her words are fanning into flame his sexual urges. The train is running at 100 miles an hour and there's no stopping it now. And then finally, minimizing verses 16, 17, and 18. Well, actually, we can do this. I'm on top of this, and nobody will know. We won't get caught. All the details have been covered. But verses 22 and 23, in reality, there's always a huge cost. But by this stage, this guy is just so driven by his senses that he just walks into her bed, falls into her bed, like a dumb animal. It's a shocking reveal, isn't it? And yet it's a wonderful portrayal of how an idol takes hold of us and causes us to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice to get what it promises us. So what's the secret of staying on the track of wisdom and true intimacy? Well, again, I've just got three or four headings here trying to, trying to gather together the text. And remember, the text is poetry. It's picture language. So none of this is meant to be taken in an absolute sense, including the word death. It's not as if the Bible is saying anybody who commits adultery automatically is guaranteed to death and go to hell. It's a picture of how serious it is in God's economy and persisted in it will lead to death, actual death and destruction and hell. But it's a picture of, of see the seriousness of it. See that you're standing on the abyss and move away from it. So what's the secret of staying on the track of wisdom and true intimacy? Well, the first one I'm suggesting here is talk to yourself. Talk to yourself about what is really important and true. Now, it's commonly said 
that uh, talking to yourself is the, is the first sign of madness. That's ridiculous. Uh, firstly, because we're always talking to ourselves. It's just that sometimes when we talk to ourselves, we just fill our mind that we talk to ourselves rubbish. But we're always talking to ourselves. In Proverbs, talking to yourself is the first sign of wisdom when you're talking to yourself about God's commands. The key is to speak wisdom to ourselves, or as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the key is to preach God's word to ourselves, to our own hearts, verses 4 and 5. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. And then verse 5, that will keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth idols. Smooth words. What will keep you from idols of any sort? Valuing, and that's the picture of verse 4. Valuing God's wisdom like you would a loving sister who's not afraid to look you in the eye and call you out and say, you've been an absolute idiot. I've thankfully only got one sister for that reason. Um, Three brothers, but only one sister, and one I think is enough for any family. But uh, I can have that discussion with you later, so, yeah. Or at least one of my sisters. Um, Anyway, I'll just stop now, okay. Um, value, Value wisdom like a loving sister. Value wisdom like a close friend. And again, a close friend is a picture of somebody who will actually speak the truth in love to you, who will call you out when you're, when you're being a, yeah, an idiot. Who will say, look, you're not thinking straight. You need to say it like this. Second strategy, put a fire awareness plan in place now. We're, we're very much in tune with fire awareness plans. We all the, the bushfires last year um, and the devastation of it. Last week in chapter 6, verse uh, 27, Martin talked about the verse, can a, marry, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burnt? Playing with false intimacy is, is like playing with fire. It's like lighting a fire in a dry bushland setting on a hot, windy day. It's just not going to end well. It will get out of control and it will consume you. And so verses 1 and 2 and 4, the time to prepare for a wildfire fire is now. Ahead of time. When you're calm, when you're in control of your senses, when your passions are are under control, when you're saying things straight, when you can actually read God's word and see the implications and feel the import of it, that's the time to put your fire plan in place. Not when the fire's licking at your door. Not when, in this situation, when you're actually in the embrace of this woman and kissing her passionately. That ain't no time to try and formulate a plan. Well, what should I do now? Hmm... Keep your inner landscape fixed and healthy. Verse uh, 25, again, this repeated thing through Proverbs. Let not your heart, and that includes your attitudes, your thinking, and all those sort of things. Let not your heart turn aside to her way. Do not stray. Do not just aimlessly wander into her paths because you've not maintained a healthy inner landscape. You've not guarded your attitudes and your thinking.
Make the Lord, cultivate a healthy heart, make the Lord the object of your desire and source of delight. Don't overestimate your ability to resist temptation. Don't underestimate the power of sex and seduction. It's, you can't play with it without getting burnt. Don't allow yourself to wander aimlessly in life. But lastly, and this is a bit of a negative one, uh, this is one from Eeyore, um, if nothing else works, use fear as a motivation. Fear of the carnage, verses 26 and 27. If nothing else works with just try and fill your mind with a fear of the carnage that unfaithfulness brings. It's not the best motivation, but it's far better than none. Because fear makes even the most self-reliant, self-confident. And that's what this young, young man is here, as he's depicted here. That's what the foolish man is. He's self-reliant. He's self-confident. He thinks, I'm in control. I can do this. I can go to this point and stop safely and enjoy it up to this point, but not get myself into danger. Fear makes even the most self-confident, willful people more cautious and therefore hopefully more thoughtful in their life actions, life decisions. So friends, as always, and as always as is always the conclusion in Proverbs, experiencing the slippery slope of foolishness and destruction or staying on the track of true intimacy comes down to a very simple factor, a very simple choice, and that is, who is your standard of beauty, of desirability, of delight, of love, of satisfaction? Proverbs and the scripture generally tell us that wisdom equals getting Jesus because Jesus is the wisdom and righteousness of God, 1 Corinthians. Getting Jesus is to get true intimacy, full acceptance with God, steadfast love, eternal love, total validation. And that all results in expressing wisdom in our life decisions, expressing the mind of Christ in all points, in all facets, in all categories of life. Including our sexuality. Now at first glance, wisdom may not look as appealing as the picture portrayed in this in this, uh, this chapter of, of a, a woman who's dressed to kill, as we say, dressed provocatively, and just oozing sex and sexuality, that seems to grab our attention. It looks so appealing. But man, it's poison. Wisdom may not at first glance look that appealing, but it delivers. It delivers true intimacy. It delivers the acceptance, value, and love we crave. Unfaithfulness, on the other hand, or foolishness, is, is chasing our own form of wisdom. And it's settling for the, um, the false intimacy of idols. They promise delight, but ultimately deliver destruction. It may seem more attractive, but it embodies everything that is against God's, how God's people are defined. 
And from here, I think, and I'll finish with this, from here, I think, we can see our best defense against temptation to unfaithfulness. You see, when we think of the Lord Jesus, it was our unfaithfulness at every point in life which forced the Father to put him on the cross and kill him. It doesn't get any more, the carnage doesn't get any bigger than that, does it? He experienced the ultimate carnage of unfaithfulness. He lost everything because of our unfaithfulness. He suffered everything because of our unfaithfulness. He, he bore the brunt of the anger of God, who is our aggrieved lover because we betrayed him in unfaithfulness repeatedly. He bore the shame and the judgment of all our unfaithfulness, smeared onto him, and quite literally he went down to the pit of hell because of our unfaithfulness. Why? To free us from our sin, to set us free from a lifetime of unfaithfulness. To set us free to righteousness. So the best temptation, the best uh, motivation to avoid temptation to unfaithfulness. I, I keep saying to myself now, as I've, as I've a temptation to eat again. Look to Jesus for that which you're craving at the moment. Don't think food's going to give it to you. And remember the cost, the carnage that Jesus has endured because of your previous unfaithfulness. And Calderwood, don't trample on his costly love. Lord, help me never to give in to the temptation to unfaithfulness. Let me pray. Lord, un unfaithfulness just defines our, our response to you. Even, Lord, now as Christians, when we have the, the, the reality and the joy of knowing we've been renewed from the inside out and that we have your Holy Spirit specifically given to help us express the mind of Christ, even then, Lord, we find ourselves, I find myself just going back to the old promises, the old empty promises that there is a delight and a satisfaction in things or, or places other than you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive me. And help us, Lord, to find you, make to, to make you our source of delight and satisfaction and joy and to make you the standard of beauty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.